Hi, John. Hi, Dan. How's your How's your tum uh, tum? Oh, fine. You said it came it came back. Yeah, I've had a I've had a little bout of of sickness, but you know I don't let myself throw up, Dan. You so hold it. You keep was, it in. Keep it inside, like your emotions. Keep, Keep it inside. Yeah. Turn it into something else. Let yeah. it turn into something else. Wolverines. That's right. Uh, so, but you know what that means is that I often feel bad for hours at a time. Do you do you feel do the throw up do you feel the urge to throw up to vomit to release the bolus and yet you deny yourself that? That's right. Is it just because it, you don't like the feeling of throwing up? Oh no, the feeling of throwing up is fine. I just don't like uh, the feeling of not being in control of my body. Because when processes. you th- when you throw up, you're gi- you're giving over control to to the physical reaction of throwing up. There's no uh, no turning back once you kind of go for it. Right, and then your body takes over without your mind's involvement, and you you're just along for the ride. Right. But also, but then it's gone. You know, I'm one of those, um, I'm one of those people that does not like to go to sleep at all. I will fight going to sleep. Just fight it. Like I'm fighting, like I'm fighting a Wolverine. Yeah. Until I absolutely cannot keep my eyes open another second. Yeah. And then of course in the morning, I also don't want to wake up with the same ferocity. Uh, and there's no reason for me to fight sleep. I love sleep. I don't have nightmares. I don't have sleep isn't bad. I just fight it. I just fight it. Sure. Because fuck you. Yeah. Fuck you sleep and fuck you throwing up. Um, yeah, I know that throwing up is, you know, once you do it, you're much better, but, but I just don't want to. Not, not because it's bad. It feels great. Although I am a violent thrower upper because I don't do it very often when it finally does take me over. Boy, I'm, I really turns me inside out. You commit but, to it. How do you resist it though? Will strong will. You don't have a strong enough will to not have a second piece of pie. How do you, how do you prevent your body from throwing up? Oh, I have a strong will to not have a second piece of pie. It's just that my will to have a second piece of pie is stronger. <laughs> That, is that where the term battle of wills comes from? Maybe, yeah. yeah. Although that's usually two separate people. Um, but but there's, there's um, future John and present John. Those are the two yeah. who are usually fine. Well, past John is always in there, although he's not fighting so much as just like being an asshole. Mm-hmm. Past John's in there like just just egging the other two on. Yeah. Well, here we are. I feel fine. I'm glad you're okay. I I didn't sleep very much last night. I've been having a little bit of not sleeping. Um, Because you've been fighting it or just because of some other reason? Because of the sickness? Oh, who knows? Who knows why? Like, do you lay down with the intent to go to sleep and then you don't fall asleep? Or is it more just you, you wake up in the night? What's going on? Normally, I don't do that. Normally, I don't lay down, turn the lights off, and try and go to sleep, and then fail to go to sleep. Yeah, for the reasons already mentioned. Because yeah. by the time that happens, I'm, I'm just dead to the world. 
But last night I, I said, you know, here it is. It's midnight. I'm going to get up at eight and go take my daughter to school. I could get eight solid hours oh, of sleep. Yes, yes, yes. And so I turned the light off and I laid down. And then at two o'clock in the morning, I was still tossing and turning. And I mm. said, this isn't very good. That sucks. So then I woke up and I, I don't know what I did. I did something for an hour or so. And then I was tired. So then I went to sleep. Okay. You know, in the middle, sort of at about, a, about 1130 or 12 last night, I heard a bang outside in the, in the night. And so I went into my outside in the night mode mm. and the, the first version, cause you know, I'm by that point in time, I'm like in my underwear, I'm just walking around the house. And, um, uh, but my, the first step in, you know, bang in the night mode is turn all the lights in the house off so that my eyes adjust to the dark. Yeah. And then I look out through the windows in the dark, wondering what's going on. And I saw a mysterious light across the street in front of my neighbor's house. Yeah. That looked like somebody had the their flashlight on on their phone. And I was like, hmm, that's not normal. So I put on my go out into the autumn night costume. It's like a ninja thing with happy boots? Yeah, except it's a robe. Okay. With a sword. Okay. And a Kowichan hat. Uh-huh. And so I went out into the night. I didn't have the sword. No. I was it's getting a, excited a, there for a it's second. A, it's as a far as sword. what's going to happen. Okay. I don't need a sword. Okay. I can do it, I can do it with my mind bullets. <laughs> I walked out, but I was in my, in my robe, and I walked out into the street. You know, I walked toward my neighbor's house. Right. And halfway across the street, I said, what the hell's going on over here? And... I hadn't seen, you know, all I could see was the light. I didn't see anybody. Mm-hmm. I didn't see a person. And then I hear my neighbor's voice say, oh, hello. And I was like, oh, it's Big Mike. What are you doing, Big Mike, out in the middle of the night with a light on your, you know, with a, looking at your own house with a flashlight on your phone? Yeah. And he said, I got, I, I bought an extra security camera. It arrived today on Amazon and I was putting it up. At like, 12 and... At yeah, night? You're, you're putting up your security camera at midnight using your phone flashlight. <laughs> I said, oh, all right, well, problem problem solved, you know, mission accomplished. Uh, but that was, you know, f- for a minute there, I thought that there was going to be some excitement, that I was going to go into some sort of combat sure. posture. And, you know, I've found that people don't want to fight a guy in a robe. I don't know. I don't know why it. I don't know why it is. You know, if, I think if I was just in normal clothes, that'd be the expectation would be like, yeah, let's let's fight this guy. But you know, being in a robe with your like your bare ankles sticking out, mm. just another one of the many ways of inhibiting inhibiting violence. Dressed like a naked person. Yeah. No, I yeah. can. I can see that. People don't like a naked person. Because the robe could come, the robe could fly open in the wrong way. Exactly. You know, they could they could touch your they could end up touching your PP accidentally. Yeah, and that's not what a fight. My understanding, that's not what a fight's supposed to be about. No, generally, I mean there are fights where touching your PP is like the number one thing, but there those are pretend fights. Oh, yeah. Like a like a like a setup fight. Like it, this isn't really what the fight was about. This is a pretense. Like a bad porn movie where 
you know, oh, I, I need my plumbing fixed. And then the guy comes over and fix the plumbing. It's not, you know, you know, it's just a setup, a euphemism. Right. We would like to say thank you very much to our favorite host in the world. It's Linode. That's where I have all of the inter- infrastructure for 5x5 and for Fireside.fm, the podcast hosting platform that I created. Uh, everything we do, and, and listen, I'm not bragging or anything, but like Fireside has thousands of, of podcasts and hu- hundreds of millions of downloads. Uh, and all of that processing, all of that work, all of that management, all of the the servers, databases, everything, that's all on Linode. That's how much I trust them. And if, if that's not enough try, uh, for you to go give them a shot, well, then listen, listen to this spot. Because what Linode lets you do is it, it lets you instantly deploy and manage a server in their cloud. Now, they want to make a point that they use SSD drives in all of their servers and that makes a big difference. What that means is you're getting the fastest possible access to your data in the world. And these servers are super fast. You can get one up and running in just seconds. You get your choice of the Linux distribution that you want, the resources that you want, and even you get to choose the data center that it's in, the location that it's in. Um, you might want to say, you know what, you might want yours to be in California. You might want it to be in, in Dallas. You might want it to be in Tokyo or London. They've got data centers all over the place. And uh, you can pick the one that's either closest to you or closest to your customers. And it makes a difference. And here's the deal. They're giving you $20 credit just because you're a listener to this show. I'll get to a special URL and the, and the promo code in a second. That's equivalent to four free months if you're just getting started. Uh, again, they have, they have these high memory plans. You can go all the way up to 16 gigs and beyond. They've got a seven-day money-back guarantee because they know you're going to like it. And uh, gosh, they have everything. Block storage now in their Newark, Fremont, uh, Dallas, Atlanta, Frankfurt, London, and Singapore locations. You know what block storage is? It's basically a hard drive that can never fill up. So instead of getting a limited amount of space, you get unlimited space. The more space you use, yeah, they charge you for it. Of course, they, they, you know, it's nothing is free. But you never have to worry that, oh man, someone uploaded a thing and it crashed the server or we ran out of space for our log files. Gone. So here's what you do. You go to Linode, L-I-N-O-D-E dot com, Linode.com slash Roadwork, and you will get a $20 credit when you use the promo code Roadwork2018, Roadwork2018. So go check them out. The next time that you need a place to host something, it could be anything, go check it out, Linode.com slash Roadwork. You know, I was thinking, mm-hmm. Dan, mm-hmm. um, We've been talking to one another about the listeners of this show. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think we're we talk about our listeners quite often. We talk about our listeners more than we talk about our own families. We talk about them to them, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, it breaks one of the cardinal rules of podcasting. Don't don't bring <clears> that. That's only you, you who has that rule. That's not a a rule of podcasting. That's a I don't know. I respect don't, your rules, but that's it's a, it's a rule of the theater. Don't. Don't uh, don't address the audience unless it's unless you absolutely have to. Okay. But uh, but it occurred to me that there is you know one of the one of the impulses I had earlier this year when I was like hey tweet me if you're out there and I got all those lovely tweets from people was that there is no there's no road work community where uh, people interact with one another. Mm. Have you noticed that? There's not a uh, like. 
at Roderick on the line, uh, there's people are constantly trying to get something going over there where mm-hmm. they start a website that's like Roderick on the line something. Or and, they did that the thing you were uh, Instagramming about where they yeah they did a little right, thing over they, there. They do memes and they're hoping they're hoping to get other uh, people on board. And unfortunately, you know, we live in a time and also generally people that listen to this type of show don't want to talk to other people. They don't want to make friends with all the other weirdos. Yeah. But you know, I've had, I've had uh, tweet ups where people came and they were all like, Oh, it's you other people. You know, it's like, yeah, it's a little bit, it's a little bit weird, but, but, um, these two new shows I have the, uh, the omnibus and the friendly fire, they both have Facebook fan groups. Mm hmm. And the Facebook fan group is where people interact with each other and they, you know, they share their experience, strength, and hope. And uh, they talk about, you know, they compare notes. Right, sure. And those are interesting communities for me, you know, as somebody that's producing content. <clears throat> then I go over there and I read uh, what people say and I go, oh, it's, you know, and it's it's not just that they're they're tweeting things or emailing me directly. They're They're commenting on one another. Right, sure. But there's no uh, there's no such thing for roadwork. No one is, I think, I don't, whether it's the nature of this show or what, but people um, seem to be very siloed in their enjoyment of, of this program. They just yeah. uh, they stay they stay in their bubble, and I and I wonder whether or not. I think part of what inspires this is that you know, we're doing this uh, after dark thing mm-hmm. and it's very enjoyable to me. And I think it is enjoyable to other people, but also are enjoyable to the people that are there, but it's a hard sell to get people to cross a paywall and, and you know, it's just a pain in the ass. It's true. This is true. Eh, it's just, ugh. and also there's no way for them to know what's going on over there. I mean, we can sit and talk about it all day. Oh, it's right. Amazing. They don't know what they're missing is the thing. Right. But that's not a thing you can say to people without, alienating them further like you don't know what you're missing right yeah well i can guess what i'm missing which is yeah who cares uh but if we had a facebook group where people were like oh you know where they were talking about stuff now the problem is facebook is an awful place it's awful yeah but it does provide i mean the only reason i go there is to look at these fan groups because it's an it's a natural sort of message boardy kind of environment it seems like it seems like the message boards of old uh, it's very difficult it's hard to uh, it's hard to manage whether or not to to be on facebook and even instagram just because you know that they're you're contributing to to bad things in the world or at least I it mean, feels it does feel that way it just feels like, oh, why am I doing this over here? Why am I giving these people this amount of energy? Not, not the, not the real people that are there, but the people that are, that are profiting from it. Right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not profiting from my Instagram, but Instagram somehow is. Hmm. I know how they are. They're selling freaking advertisements on it. Yeah. Ads, ads everywhere. Ads. Um. I had a I had an interesting walk and talk with a that's what we call it in the business a walk and talk with an advertising guy in New York City when I was there. Oh yeah, it was really really. Um, what did you all talk about? It was really really you know like Hollywood. He was like, I gotta go. Uh, you know, I'm. I gotta take my daughter in tonight. Walk with me. Ah. Uh. 
And so we walked. From That's his the office. most movie line in the world. Walk with me. Walk with me. Yeah. Uh, we walked from 55th where his office was and 6th. We walked to Grand Central Station. And it's, you know, holiday. Sidewalks are crowded. It's nighttime. It's cold. And we're walking and talking, just bobbing and weaving through all the normal Americans just trying to get things done. And he's pitching me on stuff. And I mean, he's pitching me, but it's not like I'm not the, I'm not the most important thing in his world. You know what I mean? No, I totally know what you mean. He's like, oh, I got to catch my train to Rye where I live. And I'm like, oh, the richest zip code in America. That's nice. But he's, you know, he's pitching me on the overall thing of his thing, the overall vibe of his company and what they do. He's proud, proud of it, proud of himself. And I'm just trying to figure out how I can get in there and get anything, you know, just get some help. Right. Or get, um, and, uh, but we're bobbing and weaving, walking and talking. And I was really struck by, I've known a lot of marketing people Mm -hmm. in my life. And, you know, at a high level, marketing people are just like, um, just like at a low level, computer programmers are a kind. And then when you get up to a high level, they're that same kind, only higher. Marketing people are the same. You meet, you meet a marketing person that's just starting out and you meet a marketing person that's president of a company and they're marketing people, you know, yeah, all the way. Sure. Marketing, marketing people all the way down. We had a good rapport. I'm just... I'm just, um, I guess I'm reflecting on, reflecting on all the different ways that a life can go. Okay. Yeah. You know, like all the different, all the sort of Thanksgivings that were happening all at once, the different Thanksgivings, some of them were sad. Some of them were, were sad and unhappy Thanksgivings, but there were some that were amazing, marvelous Thanksgivings where people all came together. They hadn't seen their... Aunt Betty in a long time. My Thanksgiving was, you know, somewhere in the middle. And then I, then I, then I, I had to go to the bathroom a lot at the end of the day. Yeah, it's not, not good. Somebody just sent me a letter that was Uh written by, by my great uncle, Tom Roderick. Okay. In 1918, Tom Roderick was a captain in the infantry. Oh, that's cool. And he wrote a letter to their family saying, you know, that their son had died under his command and that he was sorry for their loss. And he said some nice things about their son, about how he had been a great soldier and his right hand man. And, uh, Tom Roderick then stayed in the army after world war one. He became a general and he was, in North Africa during the during World War II in the North Africa campaign and died there. I think he was on Eisenhower's staff in some capacity and he died oh. in North Africa. I don't know of what meningitis, something. He didn't die like under fire. He died some other how. And uh, his name, it turns out, was Thomas Edison Roderick. No I had kidding. No, idea of that. no, we always talked to, we call him, you know, Uncle, Uncle Tom or Tom Roderick. Uh, and I guess T.E. Roderick I knew, but I had no idea his name was Thomas Edison. Huh. He was my grandfather's brother. And I, and in reading this letter, I realized, you know, I have a, I have a granduncle, Al Rochester, that I knew 
really intimately. He was like a grandfather to me growing up and he died in the eighties, but he was a larger than life figure in our family, Mm -hmm. former Seattle city councilman and, and, um, you know, and kind of keeper of the flame. But I never met any of the Rodericks, the, my grand uncles over there, of which there were, I don't know, four maybe. And this guy who died in 1940, what, three, I had, I don't know anything about him. This, the, this, uh, interesting person on the internet was just like, I have this letter that's been in our family for a hundred years and we've always cherished it cause it's such a nice letter. And then I realized maybe, you know, this person I was like, Oh, it's my uncle Tom. It's the only thing I know about him is this letter that this person sent me. It's very weird thinking about, did you just get it? You just got the letter. Yeah, it came this morning. So what does the letter say? What's it all about? Oh, well, he's just talking about the fact that they are there in World War One. So what's interesting about it is the person who sent me the letter. The whole thing's kind of interesting. Um, he also sent me a couple of letters that his relative had sent home um, talking about the fighting that they were doing. And, you know, this is all interesting at another level because, of course, my grandfather – Thomas Edison Roderick's brother, David Morgan Roderick, was also an officer in the army in World War I. They were there together. Uh, And yet, you know, in my grandfather's papers, there's kind of never any real reference to his brother Tom. Uh, But so the letters, so there are a couple of letters from... um, couple of letters from the from the young man let me see i have them here home to his family in new britain connecticut and it his name is harry burson okay and and harry's writing about his experiences like in the trenches he's writing he's writing from the trenches that's so cool Saying like, I'm here, we just got done with the battle, I'm sitting next to a dead German right now, but I'm not worried about it. <laughs> there, are dead, there are dead soldiers all around me, but the Red Cross just brought us cigarettes and candy, you know, this kind of thing. We're like, oh, okay, that's all. I mean, he's got that cheery 1918 voice on, but he's talking about this like, I'm sitting in a trench, I can't lift my head up or I'll get it shot off and I'm surrounded by dead Germans. But anyway, how's mom? Oh my God. He says a couple of, a couple of times, and I'd never, I'd never seen this before. He said, uh, you know, I wrote, I'm writing a letter to his, so forth. I got, I got, I got Nat's letter. Also, I'm writing, I'm writing mother a letter in Jewish. (laughs) What does that mean? He says it a couple of times. I'm going to call up grandma, tell her I'm feeling fine. And also I'm going to write her a letter in Jewish. Well, he's got to be, he has to mean Yiddish. I'm assuming. But, but at I the same time, think, you would think that if, if he could, if, if, if he could speak Yiddish, then he would have known to call it Yiddish. Oh, well, I mean, I think it's probably just a, um, it's probably just a, a coinage or a, you know, a colloquialism, I guess, of, of that, of part that of time, Connecticut, like yeah. the Jews in, in that have, that had been in America for a while. Right. And they just referred to their language as Jewish. Okay pretty great. But then my, so my, my 
Uncle Tom writes them and says that, you know, Mr. Burson, who was a sergeant, um, you know, that just that he had been a great aide to him and had, was a brave man and had, um, had gone with him on many adventures and was someone he greatly admired and he was killed instantly by a 77 millimeter shell. Hmm. But, um, and let's see, you know, they fought together in, in Saint Michel or Michel, Michel. I don't know how that's pronounced in the Argonne and Ezel and, Oh, and uh, some of these places on the Meuse, Bois de Fay, some of these are places that my grandfather was too. But I have no idea whether the two brothers ever ran into each other during mm. the war. You would think they were all, you know, they were they were all there together. I don't know what their relationship was like. I think my grandfather was the older of the two. Um. Don't know. It's all pretty great. Pretty instructive, you know, like, but I mean, what, how did he die? Well, that's what, that's what I couldn't, I can't really say. I mean, he, he didn't die in battle. He died, um, of something. I mean, maybe of a heart attack. Um, just kind of one of those like, Oh, he was only 50 years old. Right. Um, you know, there were of those Roderick boys, there were, there were quite a few. Oh my goodness. I didn't realize this. He's, he's buried in Arlington. I just looked him up. General Thomas Edison Roderick. That's so cool. Brigadier general died September 21st, 1944. Hmm. I think that he, oh, and his wife, Gertrude Sidway, is buried there too. I didn't know that. Oh, she lived to 2001. I didn't know that if you're, if you were the spouse of someone buried in Arlington, that you also would be buried with them. Why would they keep you from being buried with your beloved, your loved one? I don't know. Arlington is a, is the national cemetery where all of the, soldiers and heroes are buried. I didn't know that it was, I, I thought I assumed that there were uh, real, that they were s- somewhat strict about um, who, who was buried there, but apparently maybe not, or maybe, not. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to, trying to take it all in. It's a lot, a lot to process, I guess. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I'm processing right now. It's a, I, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm a little all over the place. Part of it is, is, um, I don't know why I would describe this as a difficult time in my life. I'm not a hundred percent sure mm-hmm. what it is exactly that's making it right now today. Well, now, nowadays. Yeah. I'm not sure what it is that's making it difficult. I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to sort through it and I can't, I can't quite come up with, um, with a satisfying answer for why, 
Yeah, interestingly, um, I think people that that seems to be the consensus right now for a lot of people. People are struggling. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, like there were there were long stretches of time in my life where things are just sort of like they just were. They just were like you know you'd like have a job that you do and you go to the thing and and you get together with your friends and. And then like something now is different. I feel like something is different now. But I can't, yeah. I don't know what it is. Something is different. Yeah. Yeah. Something's different. Um, and if that's the case, uh, it's an epidemic of something. I don't know. I feel, I feel very estranged. I feel very estranged from, the world at large for people now. I don't feel, uh, I don't feel it's a friendly world. I don't feel connected to it in the ways that I wish I were. And, you know, maybe it is, these are the times when if you have a small and intimate community, if you have one of these groups of friends that you read about all the time that, Oh, you can only have five real friends or something. There's so many commentators out there on on life and love and friendship and so forth. And they all have a theory. Everybody's got a fucking theory, but I recognize there are groups of people that have longstanding friendships. They have dinner with one another. You know, they're, they are paired off, but their couples are friends with other couples. You know, they go on ski vacations together. Who knows? Normal people are people that live in communities where they know their neighbors or, they have their best friends from college and stuff like that. And, and so maybe some of that intimacy uh, protects them from the world when the world gets ugly because they can, they already were getting a lot of their energy from their uh, intimates and the people close to them. And if they decide to shut the blinds on the outside world, it doesn't really affect their day to day. But, you know, I was someone who had, uh, I got a lot of what felt like intimate energy from interacting with the larger world, the wider world, not close friends. Right. And, and even though, and even my close friends were people that I knew in the wider world. And a lot of our interactions were public. Mm hmm. Um, a lot of my friendships were with other entertainers and we spent, we spent a lot of time together in private, but then we would take our relationship on stage and every time we would communicate online, you know, it would be a public performance in a way. Yeah. And so when I, and then I, when I would watch them perform separately, I would feel, uh, intimacy with them in, in, in that way. So that now that the public world is in, is in shambles, like the outside world is a wreck, if I pull the blinds on it, I don't have, um, like my closest friends are not people immediately around me. My closest friends are out there in the world and they're all struggling trying to, but most of them aren't retreating. You know, most of them are still out there slogging away trying to, 
just virtue signaling like crazy out there uh-huh. on Twitter, hoping <laughs> that people don't yell at them about something and, yeah. you know, desperately trying to stay relevant and trying to, to stay on top of whatever the absolute latest concern or outrage it is that's motivating people to get up in the morning and have anxiety attacks on, on the internet. Yeah. And so I can't, I don't feel intimate with them when they do that. I feel even more estranged from them watching them perform these, these contortions. And I don't feel like, you know, it's part of the, part of the problem with that world is that I don't feel like I can talk to them about it sidebar. You know, I can't, I can't write them and say like, wow, you really were, uh, you really were up in arms about a thing that I know for a fact you don't really care about because yeah. you were performing for what you perceive to be a world that's waiting in the wings to judge you harshly if you don't say the right thing. Because there, because there's some component of the of contemporary world where everybody is, uh, they're super terrified of being called out as a fraud or being called out as not actually. Um, that freaked out about it because if you're not freaked out about it, then that means you love Hitler or whatever it is. Right. And so there's a distance now between me and a lot of the people that I love that is a result of the radicalization that's happened to them through the process of trying to stay, um, uh, trying to, trying to project virtue, uh, virtue, in their online lives so that they aren't piled on. Um, you know, these are all the people that five years ago were having super fun making, you know, weird sideways jokes on Twitter. And Mm -hmm. now not only can they not make any jokes or their jokes are, are super careful and super monitored, but they also spend three quarters of their time on there retweeting political blogs and right and expressing outrage about about <laughs> things that are happening in some Oklahoma school district and right. all this stuff where it's just like wow i mean i know you you are my friend and none of this is native to you you know what i mean like that's not natural and it isn't what you were put here on earth to do and i know you're suffering at feeling forced to do it but you also feel like there's some voice in their head that they're not forced to do. They're forced to do it by Trump or by, you know, it's their duty. It's their duty to, to be yelling about an Oklahoma school district event, because if they don't, then they're complicit in their silence and all this, like all this just Dr. Zhivago level of, of, um, indoctrination. And so I, so, you know, I draw the blinds little by little. I draw the blinds here. I draw the blinds there. Cause it's like self, self-preservation in a way. Like you have, I'm to. trying, I'm trying, but, but I'm also losing my connections. I'm losing my friends because even five years ago, I think we would have all, well, we did sit around and go, Oh my God, can you believe this? Look at this letter I just got. Mm. And it would be some letter from uh, in that school, in that family and we would all just roll our eyes and go, God, what's going on? But everybody had to make their own peace with that. And a lot of people made their peace by, you know, by deciding if you can't beat them, join them. And there, you know, there, 
but those aren't their convictions. But, and as a result of that, you know, there's that feeling of like almost hysterical, uh, this hysterical energy to project that these really are their convictions. You know, I'm not just pretending I am truly with you. Please do not come to my home. (laughs) So I don't know. I just, I feel lonely. I feel, I feel separated and I don't see, I, I know that, I know that this can't last forever, but I don't see a path in the short term. I see a lot of my friendships going by the wayside. It feels like it certainly has affected my professional relationships with people. It's affected my desire to even be in this profession, whatever this, I mean, the profession of being a public person. Yeah. I think that's true of, of, of a lot of us, but, but you know, once you're on that horse and you're, you know, you're choking at the reins, you just feel like you're, you're pot committed to, to see it through. That's a little bit of a mixed metaphor. You're on, you're playing poker on a bucking Bronco. (laughs) But that's contributing to this, this feeling that I kind of walk around and I pick stuff up off a table and I look at it and then I put it down and I walk over somewhere else. I'm just sort of absently wandering around going, what am I, what am I here for? You know, I compose essays in my head all day long essays about various topics that I would never write because I couldn't publish them. And, and then I chastise myself for not being brave, for not being brave enough to publish, to write and publish the essays that I think would solve the world's problems. If only it didn't mean that I would be in Twitter jail for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I, I thought of myself when I was growing up as that kind of essayist, but during a time when if you got an essay published, it would be published in the newspaper. And if people were mad, they could, all they could do is write letters to the newspaper. Um, they couldn't like, you, they had no podium of their own. They couldn't shame you to death right. just in their, in their, um, egg avatar anonymity. Right. But I have all, I have all the thoughts. I, I sit and I write the essays in my head. I write them and then I imagine the response to them. And then I say, well, that isn't going to help me be a better dad. You know, that isn't going to help me be a better, um, normal person or like wake up in the morning. And that article, I'm, I'm sure we've talked about it. That article I wrote about punk rock, it haunts me. It haunts me because Mm. every time somebody finds it, they, they publish it again. Somebody did it the other day. They were like, look at this article. I really agree with it. And it was some punk rocker, you know, some 50 year old punk rocker that was like, you know, this, this really pissed me off, but you got to admit he's got a lot of good points and he published it on his (laughs) Facebook page. Right. And then, you know, and then, and tagged me. So then every time I go on Facebook, I have to look at the fact that I don't have to, I mean, eventually I stopped, but there's 75 comments under this guy's post from all of his old punk rock buddies. They're like, this guy doesn't know shit. What a dumbass!" And, you know, and, and more intelligent versions of that, um, or intelligently worded versions of that where you, you know, I, I'm too sensitive to sit and 
and relish being called a dumbass 50 times for saying some things about punk rock that I meant as a, I meant as a humor piece, you know? So I think about, Oh, I'll write all these essays about contemporary life. And I just go, I would, I don't want it. I don't want, I don't want to wake up every morning and have 50 new angry tweets. And I think, I think that's, what's motivating my friends too. It's just that they're not, I guess in a way they have, what's the, I mean, is there a better way to put it than drunk the Kool-Aid? I don't know. That's, that's so, that's the other thing. I don't want to be contemptuous of my friends. I don't want to be contemptuous of their, of their politics, but I am a little, Mm -hmm. you know, there are so many people that never were interested in politics that are, that now are. And and the thing is they, they're smart people. It's not like they're dumb people that were never interested in politics and all of a sudden got radicalized. It's that they're smart people, but they weren't interested in politics. They were interested in stand up comedy or they were interested in, uh, you know, the literary world or whatever it was, or they were, they were earth scientists or something. But now politics is everything. And they've taken their political cues from people that they follow on the internet or they've just watched, you know, they're Twitter radicals. They've gotten politics in the uh, 140 characters at a time with links to outrageous events and then, you know, hot takes from commentators. And it's really clear which side you're supposed to be on, right? How you're supposed to respond to these things, how indignant you're supposed to be about small things and large. And I'm not talking about Trump. You know, I'm just talking about like perceptions of uh, of the the world behind the world. You know, the the meaning of things and the significance of small things and the and the truth behind the curtain. Not conspiracy stuff, but but like theoretical stuff. Why is the world like it is? Well, it's because it's controlled by people who are this and we need to break those systems in order to be free and the the people the people will rise up and be free by the power of their by the power of their unified conviction that things are unfair and justice like you know their notions their theories their ideas and they're kind of untestable, unprovable. Mm-hmm. Right. You can't you you can't hold justice in your hand any more than you can hold gravity in your hand. Mm. We talk about gravity all the time. We talk about we talk about it like we know what it is, but we don't know what it is. We know what it does. We can see it. We can see its effects. And the same is true of justice. What is it exactly? Well, you know when you feel it, right? You know it when you feel it, right? But you cannot. Um, but a lot of that is put a name to a feeling, and then you you put a name to a feeling, and then you walk across the street and you look and you point at the name, and you say that's what it is. You know, like if there wasn't a name for justice, or if it was, you could take you could take what we can we 
nowadays think of as justice and split it into 10 different feelings and call each one by a separate name. And honestly, there, the, that is a thought technology, you know, it's a human invention. There was no, there's, there's no guarantee of it, right? It's not, there's no justice in nature. It's entirely a product of, a of our emotional lives and our, and our, our senses. And that, I'm obviously that's true of a lot of things, but also that's true of a lot of things, you know, yeah. the, the, I, uh, the, 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 the world now is constructed so much around theories that produced theories and those theories got turned into adages or mantras. What, what do you mean? Give me an example of that. Oh, well, I mean, the, the initial brilliance of, of Marx was that he perceived history through a brand new lens, which was that it was, you know, you could interpret almost anything, any political event through this idea that there were owners and there were workers and they were, you know, in an eternal struggle. And this was brand new at the time, right? Before that, there were, you know, there, uh, we were in an age where we were trying to discover what the nature of man was and whether there was good and evil and whether or not, um, you know, where consciousness came from and, and then all of a sudden Marx dropped this, this bomb on the world which was extremely compelling to people, you know, an extremely interesting idea. Um, but, but again, just, just some thoughts that a guy had a, a, a way of seeing, you know, Oh, wait a minute. Have you ever looked at it this way? Yeah, right. That's a great, you know, that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. But then, those, you know, and Marx in the same way that I would do if I were writing essays about my thoughts, he laid it out as a, as a prescription. He had these thoughts, he, he had this perception and then he laid it out as a system. Here's what, you know, here's what this means and here's how you would order the world differently. Now that we have this insight, here's how we should order the world in, but you know, that insight is incomplete. You, you can't have a theory that encompasses all human interactions, you know, like it's not all, it's not a constant struggle. Every single thing between mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. have and a have not between a, that's not how power works. That's not, not how dynamics work. The world is just far too complicated. And, th- and I don't mean that to say that Marxism is super true, but it doesn't account for all the fringe cases. I mean, it isn't Marxism is a theory of interaction. It isn't a true description of the world any more than anything is. 
But as soon as it got written down as a set of rules, all of a sudden it started to feel like it was um, it was a system that if we just adhered to it, it would resolve mm. all these problems. Like any, like any. I mean, if you were a perfect Christian and everyone else was a perfect Christian, uh, the presumption is that that would solve all of our problems. It wouldn't. And not just because we can't all be perfect Christians, but there's always going to be one person that doesn't want to be, you know? <laughs> I mean, how do you have a system that, it, that accounts for or that, that includes the fact that 50% of the people are, don't agree, aren't going to go. You can't, you have to force those people mm-hmm. according to these systems. You either have to baptize them in blood or you have to put them in prison or, or I mean, we're going to free the half of the population that lives in chains by putting the other half of the population in chains. Mm-hmm. Well, here we are, you know, 150 years later and just the just the history now behind those ideas gives them an an added degree of power and you know in the convenient um like the super convenient failure to acknowledge the dark history of those ideas they still feel new it's just like ska music like every <laughs> Every year there's a new generation of 15 year olds that discover ska for the first time. Sure. And they're like, this is the most amazing music that ever, you know, why isn't everyone listening to ska? And it's the same with Ayn Rand and it's the same with Marx. Every year there's a new generation that feels like no one's ever seen this before. And this is, you know, these are simple solutions to complicated problems. And why don't we just get on board? Well, the problem is now that stuff's all couched in, it's all been through several filters so that when you say to people that the, that the dynamic, the world dynamic is between power people, rich power people and poor, the poor masses, that sure looks right. It sure seems right. And it looks right. There are rich, powerful people and there are a lot of poor people and the dynamic, you know, Marx's insight is it. That's what makes it so so effective it's it, it it's true but but along the way it gets perverted small ways big ways it gets perverted so that it becomes the only way you can perceive dynamics of all of all shapes and sizes mm. anytime two people are interacting there's a way to look at it as a interaction between one person who has more power than the other and therefore is the oppressor. Any two people, you and I, this conversation right now, mm-hmm. you could make a critique of it according to those terms or the fact that we're talking and there are people listening to it. You could make that critique. It's easy to make critiques. There's nothing easier than to get kind of a foundation in one of those systems of thought and then feel like you've got it. You nailed it. You understand it completely and all, and you're just empowered to go out and start making critiques of things. And the way that Twitter allows that to become a kind of conventional wisdom so that 
you read it enough times, you read that critique applied enough ways, and it feels like this is how we think. This is how we think on the left. We make this kind of critique based on this shared knowledge that we know to be true. But, but it isn't true. It's not false necessarily, but it's not true. Each one of those instances requires, you know, it, it, um, it requires that you show that instance, that particular instance, the respect of taking it on its own terms. There are always situations where, I mean, power is so flexible and, and so malleable. A rich person is not exclu- is not always immune and 100% in power all the time. And a poor person is not always a victim. Mm-hmm. Even in the same interaction from beginning to end, power can, can switch and change. It's not immutable. And we do ourselves and the world a disservice to, to put it all into this function machine. But to resist that, to question it, to shine a light on it, to say anything other than to parrot it, to internalize it, first of all, so that it doesn't feel like parroting. So it feels like it belongs to you. Mm -hmm. It's It's an original thought that you had or a thing that is said by other people that you respect that is that comports with your community standards and also feels true again, feels true to you so that you have all these smart people that weren't political before and now are very political, but they're not conscious of the fact that they are, they don't understand the system they're espousing and they haven't thought it all the way through to what the end game is. What's the plan exactly? Like what does a perfect world look like to you? Who is out of power and how do you accomplish that? How do you accomplish putting the people that are, that you don't like who you perceive to be in power out of power? How do you do it practically? Kill them? Arrest them? Well, arrest them how? Who are the cops there? (laughs) What is the legal system? What is the law they broke? And who made that law? did the people that are in power make that law? Does that invalidate that law? Do we go right back to the very first law and start re-adjudicating them all based on who made them? Based on the fact that they maybe were made in the, in a cauldron of a power imbalance or a, you know, do we apply dialectical materialism to every? thing past and future like how do you accomplish what you're trying to accomplish if you aren't just complaining if your whole game isn't just to sit and lob barbs and yell and talk about this Oklahoma school district like I know what the I know what those I know what my opponents are trying to do I know how I know what their end game is but what's ours what's yours if you're if you're talking about politics all day, if you are if you're prepared to sit and be smug about justice, like walk me through the process. 
because as soon as you as soon as you disallow the fact that 50% of the people in the country don't agree with you, then you've abandoned democracy for sure. So in the absence of democracy, then what's the, what's the plan? An enlightened autocracy, an enlightened oligarchy, or do you feel like the people who believe the same things that you do are the, are hashtag the people? Mm-hmm. And the people who disagree with you are hashtag the bad, the baddies, the ones we can safely ignore. But to, but to express any of that, you know, unfortunately there are people who express that kind of doubt who also identify as members of the, um, members of my of people that I would consider my political opponents mm-hmm. or who identify as members of the cultural elite or who just identify as white dudes or whatever it is that they identify with that, that in our current climate, just their identity invalidates their ideas. And so by association, it invalidates mine because I said something one time that was the same as this other person who's like a legitimate thinker somewhere. He's, you know, he or she, they're people who have opinions and are putting them out in the world, but they're the, but they're wrong. They're the wrong opinions. And I just, I also think they're wrong or I disagree with those people too, but guilt by association. I use the, you know, I'm talking about Marxism in a way that isn't, laudatory and so therefore I must be a one of these aging liberals who is becoming more and more conservative in response to a to this you know radicalism that's ascendant and I'm not any more conservative than I ever was and I've watched radicals my whole life. I was one when I was young, as as uh, you would expect. And I don't know. I read a lot of books. I went to a lot of protests. I kind of get a, I get a sense of what the thought technologies are, and how you're obligated to walk yourself through your plan. It's part of the problem with the Democrats now. They don't have a plan. They're 100% reactive. It's like, oh, what do the polls say is the fashionable cause, you know? They don't have a plan. They don't have, they're not projecting a future that is more concrete than just we are in favor of the disenfranchised, which is like, yeah, that's, I mean, 100%, that's what you should be doing. But what is the plan? We would like to say thank you very much to Brooklyn. And, you know, I love it when we get a sponsor whose product I just absolutely love and use all the time because, like, they can pay us to read the spot, but they can't pay me to say, I genuinely love their product and I do genuinely love the Brooklyn and sheets. You spend like a third of your life in your sheets if you think about it. And, why not be comfortable? Why not have the best sheets that you can possibly have? You probably have some sheets and you're like, oh, they're all right. Trust me, 
you need to try the Brooklinen sheets. They are super comfortable. These are like five star. And that, well, actually, that's that's what the idea was for this. Is they the the people who started this company felt like you should be able to have five star hotel sheets in your own house. You shouldn't have to spend hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to get them. That's their whole philosophy. You should have those sheets at home. You should be able to enjoy them every night in your own bed. And uh, they were named the winner of the best of online betting category by Good Housekeeping. They've got 30,000 five-star reviews more than any other betting company. And they've got half a million happy sleepers and counting. And, uh, and this is the thing. I love these. They don't just feel amazing. They look really great too. Uh, you can pick uh, all the different styles that they have. Some have like stripes and different colors. You can mix and match. You don't want just, listen, if you just have like a set of plain white sheets on your bed, that this is 2018. You can do better than that. Mix and match. Change it up. But they also do towels. They do robes. They do candles, sleep masks, all the stuff that you want or need to improve your sleep quality, to set the right mood for when you're going to go to bed. It's awesome. And it really does make a big difference. And these sheets are the best. They're the, by far the most comfortable sheets I've ever slept on. And, uh, and guess what? Now is the time that you can upgrade your sheets too, because they have an exclusive offer uh, just for Roadwork listeners, $20 off and free shipping when you use the promo code ROADWORK at brooklinen.com. Let me spell that for you. B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Trust me on this. These are really great sheets and I think you're really going to like them. Promo code ROADWORK at brooklinen.com. They're they're so confident that you're going to like them, uh, whether it's the sheets, the comforters, the towels, they have a lifetime warranty. So again, 20 bucks off, free shipping, promo code is ROADWORK at brooklinen.com, best sheets ever. Meanwhile, the you know the conservatives have done a great, great job of just doing this small ball groundwork stuff, redistricting and spreading sort of like paranoia in churches and <laughs> going where people are, you know, going to gun ranges or Facebook even and just doing this doing the easy work which is making people feel scared I mean that's the simplest thing in the world to do put little put little shit places make them make people feel scared put little flyers around that says did you know that your water has fluoride in it it's killing your children that takes nothing it takes no imagination, but it, and it's super effective. The Democrats need, or the left needs to have more imagination, and they have less even. You know, they're putting flyers around that are like, fluoride, have you heard about it? Is it good <laughs> or bad? Answer our, you know, answer our, our poll. Like, what? what? <laughs> so what do you, what do we do, John? do about it the problem is we always used to think that education was the solution yeah this was the we've talked about this before the american ideal the liberal ideal is Mm -hmm. education Mm -hmm. is the solution but the problem is right now all of this is a product of education of a kind of a form of education of a form of lazy education like more people there are more college graduates in America now than there have ever been at any point in time. So you can't point and say, we need more education. 
you can say we need better education, but nobody knows what that means. Nobody's, nobody is prepared to make the hard call, which is that better education means more concentrated education. It doesn't mean diffuse education. It doesn't mean 40 colleges in the city of San Francisco. It means fewer colleges. It means more acknowledgement that like education is a thing that needs to be that's that requires discipline and it isn't um you cannot make 200 million political scientists and expect politics to be comprehensible like it's a job it's a profession it is not you know, just as electrical engineering is not a thing that we expect to be crowdsourced. Like politics is a, is a life's pursuit. It's an art. And we're living in a world where, you know, I got an email from some 22 year old earth sciences major talking to me about his expectations of what words I can use. Hmm based on hearing me on a podcast and, and he, and he had that smug certitude of somebody that was like, well, we don't use these words anymore. It was like, Oh, we don't, do we like, are, are you a biology major? What was the word or words? He, he said that we don't use the word lame anymore. All he right. Because say, that would offend people who are, you know, have a, say, a leg problem. Even though no one has used the word lame to describe a disabled person since 1910. No, you describe a horse as lame. Right. Uh, and that an might animal. offend a horse if they heard it. An animal is lame. That's, yeah. that's You wouldn't call that's, a, hu- a human being walking down the street, and, oh, look at that, lame. No. Lame old uh, lady there. You would not. You would not say, how long have you been lame? Right. Now, that's <laughs> a thing that my grandfather would have said. Sure. It would have been a valid, a valid question. And but not offend, not offensive, not offensive, right? In 1910, lame. Uh, but, I, I think it used in the the slang way that we use it means lame. Yeah, like not uh, n- n- an inadequate solution. Yeah, not cool. But this kid didn't come up with this himself. You know what I mean? He no, do, oh, hold on. No, you know, do do. The youth, does the youth get to make those decisions on behalf of the generations that came before them? Can't, do, do they, do we grant them that much power that, uh, and because I think the answer is yes, we generally do as a society, but are you saying that we shouldn't? Are you saying that, that the, somebody who is half of your age Ha, does not have the right to tell you that's not how we do things anymore, old man. We don't say things like that. And you, you've got to get with the times and your so-called wisdom and age is not applicable here. You, you need to conform to the new standards. You know? Well, uh, all, that's all kind of not how I would phrase it. I mean, th- this kid has the right to say whatever he wants. He has it's he has no way of enforcing his ideology other than through 
social media shaming. And what that requires is that more people agree with him than that agree with me, right? That's the ultimate sort of democratic side of, um, of this sort of social media universe. Now in the past, no one in the world would take a 22 year old earth sciences major, uh, seriously on the topic of anything, even earth sciences, (laughs) right? Like Uh, (laughs) that that person has not earned the right to, to no, you're right. When he, it's when he's true. 35, maybe the earth sciences community will feel like he's paid his dues, uh-huh. but he has no authority in the world of how language is used. He's parroting a thing that he heard and someone up the line, um, came up with the idea that this is a thing that we don't do anymore. Now mm-hmm. I guarantee you it was not a disabled person. Um, it was a virtue signaling theorist, young theorists. And that young theorist is working, is basing that idea on the work of people that came before, right? We don't say there are, there are some words that we don't say anymore. Retard, fag, you know, those were common words 10 years ago. Oh yeah. And we don't say them now. And so not, not just common, but, but Critical to conveying a point. Right. Well, uh, if you were like a dude, I don't think or a it kid, was as critical. A little kid. I mean, when I, when, I was, when I was a 12-year-old, those were important words. So the fact that we eliminated those words from like the lexicon was a successful project. And it took, you know, some people went kicking and screaming. It took a long time to convince people that... You know, because there were all those people who were like, well, when I say fag, it's not that I'm talking about gay people. I'm talking about that guy. He's being a fag. And it's like, yeah, we just don't do that anymore. That's not fine. So much so that even me saying it now on the show is like singeing some people's ears. Right. They, they had to stop the show right now. Because just because the- you said it, even, even though you didn't say it with meaning or intent, you still used the word. People have turned off the show now and they've unsubscribed. Right. Guaranteed. Yeah. We, we were doing a show on friendly fire and one of the, one of the characters in the movie used the N word and I, in discussing their use of it, used it and it, and, uh, one of my co-hosts brought the, brought the show to a screeching halt. Yeah. And said, it is not okay to use that word, even quoting someone else. You cannot speak it. It cannot pass, pass your lips because the mere presence of that word, the idea that you, it's like, it's like, it's like a, a Hebrew saying the word God out loud. <laughs> it is verboten 100%. But so this work that people did in, in making those words in, in eliminating those words from common parlance was based on earlier work, work that people did where they theorized that words had power that were, uh, that they had power that were in which they were imbued with oppression. 
They were imbued with authority. They were imbued with power beyond their descriptive power mm -hmm. because they were coined or used by people who were oppressors. And they victimized people by merely by using them. The idea of sticks and stones may break uh, our bones is a is invalidated because you cannot fight language because language is the primary instrument of consciousness. You know, it, the people that were doing this work in the '60s, the Noam Chomsky's and the Derrida's, you know, they were coming up with these these theories, linguistic theories about how language made and shaped the world more so even than work language shaped the world. And so those were theories that became very powerful that turned into subsequent theories that turned into rules that turned into laws and it all tumbles down out of the mountain until it arrives on this kid's desk and he's listening to a show and he hears me say, well, that guy's lame. And he realizes this is his moment. He's, you know, he's the revolutionary. He's going to correct this because me using it is perpetuating a power imbalance between able-bodied and disabled people, et cetera, et cetera. There are, he could, he could justify it a thousand ways. And he hasn't, he hasn't worked through the fact that if you really want to get down into language that way, we're going to have to reinvent it. There, I mean, the root, the root of 40% of the words in the whole dictionary, you could find in, in the, in their root, in their origin, some, maybe more, some evidence of those words having problematic qualities. And you know what? It is time to say thank you so much to our friends over at, you guessed it, Squarespace. Squarespace helps you turn your cool idea into a new website. You can showcase your work. You can blog. You can publish content. You can sell products that are physical or digital. You can promote your physical or online business. You can announce an upcoming event or a special project and more. They've got beautiful templates created by world-class designers. They even have a new way to buy domains. You can choose from over 200 domain name extensions. This isn't just when you're making a Squarespace site. You can just go there and buy the domain. Why not? They've got built-in SEO. They've got built-in analytics. They've got uh, you know, uh, hosting that's, that's secure. You don't have to patch or upgrade anything. They've got 24-7 uh, customer support. They've won awards for their customer support. You can make this yourself. You can create a website by yourself. You don't need to hire anyone anymore. And, it, and it's going to be beautiful. And people are going to come to you and say, will you design my site? And you can just laugh. You can just laugh at them and say, I didn't design. Oh, maybe I don't need to tell them I didn't design it. And then you, can, you could do a Squarespace website for them and charge them for it. I'm just, listen, I'm just coming up with ideas for you. But no matter what, you're going to be able to do it with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com slash roadwork. That supports the show and gets you a free trial. And when you're ready to sign up, you will use the offer code ROADWORK, one word, and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. So we'd like to say thank you to squarespace.com slash ROADWORK. And thank you to the promo code ROADWORK to get you that 10%. Thanks so much, Squarespace, for supporting this show.
So what what is what is the end game and who and how what is the end game of protecting people? Where where what is, what are is it possible to accomplish a world in which no one's feelings are hurt? Is it possible to accomplish a world where everyone is perfectly equal and there is no want? And if and if you if you roll your eyes at that question and if you say that's not what we're trying to do, we're just trying to do some medium ground work where we make the world better, not perfect, but better. I mean, you have to work out where that, where the line is, where you stop. Is that clear? Has that been made? Is that like one we all agree on? Like at what point is the world fair enough? At what point is there enough justice? At what point are the imbalances redressed enough? I'm not saying that there is or isn't a place. I'm not saying whether that hasn't become the human mission, right? The the human mission is no longer to explore space. The human mission is no longer to cure disease. The human mission now is to make everything fair. And, you know, frankly, I don't think that will last. I don't think that's enough of a mission for us. I think we have, we're capable of bigger things than making the world fair. Because I don't think that making the world fair produces much. And I don't think it's possible because I to make it, to make it fair for everyone all the time. Well, or even fair a little bit. I mean, all you, all you have to do is hand the, the clicker to somebody on the couch and it doesn't matter who they were before. Now they're the one with the clicker and now they become an asshole, right? You can take, you can hand the, the clicker to you can be in a, in a room full of adults and hand the clicker to a four-year-old and all of a sudden the four-year-old is driving the ship and the four-year-old is a monster. You know, there is no, there is no v- virtuous nature of mankind where fairness, where, where, where anyone is ever satisfied with their lot. It's just not how we are. So if you took all the money in the world and spread it equally among everyone, immediately someone would find a way to get the money out of their neighbor's hands. And it wouldn't be that they were a schemer. It would be that they felt like they deserved a little extra because they were lame. Mm. 